Twilight. Uh, it happened. We bought into it. We were stands. I feel like I can say to people, like, yeah, I was a Twilight stan, but at least I was Team Jacob. That gives you a modicum of grace. <laughs> Welcome to Trope Confessions, the podcast where we discuss tropes, themes, and patterns in media and in the communities that surround them. Maggie. Aya. I have a confession to make. Tell me. There's this trope that's been maligned quite a bit in the last few years, and, uh, you know, it all it all really went off the rails with Twilight, but I, I gotta say, I think that this trope has some really redeeming qualities, and I think it's great, and I think we should keep it. Alright, which one is it? It's the love triangle, of course. Oh, of course. I think... I think they can be really interesting, and just because there's one really popular, really bad love triangle (laughs) does not mean that the trope is overdone. You know, I'm inclined to agree with you, but uh, tell tell me more. Convince me. I actually, I love love triangles so much that I actually have two of them in my book. And if I had one more love triangle, I could have a love triangle of love triangles where one love triangle is in love with another love triangle. Never mind. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I support you doing that. And I feel like you should go for it. I'm getting so messy over here that I'm on my way to what you call the love dodecahedron because two of my love triangles are really overlapping. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and I just realized that this happens... In the Ember series as well. The Ember Quartet. Oh, yeah. Here. It does. So there's there's two love triangles in Saba Tahir's Ember Quartet. There is Laia, Elias, and Helene. So Laia and Helene are both, I wouldn't necessarily say in love with at the very beginning, but they're both into Elias. And uh, Laia has a, has a couple of pursuers of her own, one of which is Elias and one of which is not. Yes. And so there's, there's sort of a sort of a snake of one love triangle connects to the, the love triangles connected to the other love triangle. <laughs> yeah. I, I, anyway, you're definitely <laughs> on to something there. We can make a song out of this. I feel like there's a, we could also, you know, let's get all, all the shapes in there. We could do some like love triangle Venn diagrams where, you know, like some of the parts of the triangle overlap in the middle of the, the Venn diagram. We're just, it's, we're getting very geometric on the podcast today. We are. And you know what it's making me think about is my magic system in my book, which is based on geometry. And I was just thinking to myself, if the love triangle gets complex enough, it could be its own magic spell and could cause utter chaos. Ooh. And uh, that's amazing. I am just, I'm just really excited by this idea. Sexy spells. I'm into it. Okay, Maggie, do you want to go ahead and explain this love dodecahedron right now? Sure. Basically, and this is something I think on the TV Tropes page, basically it's like you don't just have the three sides of the love triangle, but there's actually, you know, like so many other extraneous players in the romance situation that it becomes difficult to keep track of. And it's like, well, this character slept with these other two characters and one of those characters has a kid with this one person but isn't in a relationship with them. It's like that kind of thing. Okay, so friends. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like all six of those characters <laughs> okay. are uh, in the love dotecahedron. Yeah, mostly I thought it was a really funny name. <laughs> it is we should really touch funny. on it. No, yeah. I like it. I like it. 
other than sitcoms, I feel like this doesn't happen that much. Yeah, it? yeah, like it's like sitcoms, soap operas. Oh, and like every uh, CW teen soap. Okay. Happens on those. Beverly Hills 90210. Lots of, it's like soap operas, basically, is where this happens. Especially once you accept that everyone can be queer, it just gets really messy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, it, but it also opens up so many more fun possibilities, so. It really does, yeah. Did you see, this is stupid of me, but did you see my Tumblr post the other day where I was like, for someone with a soulmate, my OC really falls in love a lot. Yes, I did see that. That was so funny. Okay, I know this is only funny to me, but to me, it's extremely funny. Yeah. All right, so here's the deal with the love triangle. It's that during the Twilight era, people got so into the Team Edward versus Team Jacob concept that people began to feel like the love triangle itself was just a bad concept. And what we're going to argue today, or at least I'm going to argue, I think, Maggie, you secretly agree with me, or maybe not so secretly. (laughs) I think there might be a love triangle or two in your book. Yes. What we're going to argue today is that the love triangle, when done well, is actually a great way to explore the tensions in a character's desires and needs and wants. And oftentimes, the tension between a character's need and their want can be highlighted by a love triangle in which the two relationships bring out different aspects of their personality and pit them up against different challenges. And so deciding what really matters to them and what they really need underneath the things that they want and the things that they're pursuing in the plot of the story, those relationships can come to exemplify those things when it's done well. Yeah, absolutely. So in order to dissect that, I think it would be good to understand why the Bella Edward Jacob love triangle in Twilight felt annoying and why it never really felt like a coherent love triangle. Let's not go too deeply into this, but I think if we just went and reminded uh, listeners in case anyone has managed to forget <laughs> what Twilight... God bless what you <laughs> if you have. <laughs> yeah. In case you've managed to forget what the Twilight era felt like, the the book series sets up Bella to find Edward, her one true love, and, you know, eventually want to become a vampire. And then when there's a break in the relationship, it sort of inserts Jacob as a secondary love interest, where Jacob is very much into Bella the whole time. But even, I think, at Bella's most vulnerable toward Jacob and her most, like, wanting to be close to him, I don't think her feelings ever cross over into the romantic region. Even though I was hardcore team Jacob as a younger person. Same. <laughs> That's why we were friends. <laughs> we did, We were friends in the Twilight era, in case you haven't listened to any previous episodes where we mentioned that. <laughs> did we meet Stephanie Meyer together? Yes. Yeah, it was you, me, and Stuart. Yeah, right, so. right, right, yes. What a, what a day that was. Anyway, so we we went, we met Stephanie Meyer, we were a hardcore team Jacob, uh, but even though we thought that Jacob was a more interesting character and would be a better romantic partner for Bella, the text of the book really never sets him up in an equal way to Edward. He's never really an option, in my opinion. And even though the fandom really made him into one, I think that there was a feedback loop between the 
the fandom enjoying Jacob and thinking that he was a better fit for Bella, but also the marketing of the movies as they were coming out. I don't feel like this was so much the case with the books, but it definitely was with the movies. Yeah, you had for to, sure. You had to declare your loyalty to Edward or Jacob. Yeah, you had to like and, and completely like disavow any person who was on the other team. You know, we could get on a whole tangent about the way things are marketed to teen girls and the way that media for for teen girls is handled. But, you know, they, there was this sense that it was, you know, houses would be torn apart. Oh, my God. Because, you know, one sibling is teen Jacob and the <laughs> other's teen Edward. Or the mom could be teen Edward and the teenage child could be teen Jacob. Oh, Edward. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Because, so yeah, Twilight Moms. It's Twilight the whole phenomenon. Moms. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, and I, I think... In addition to having that be a clever marketing ploy to really get the fan base to engage, I also think, and this is probably both internal and external in terms of the fan base, but it's like, what does my allegiance to this this team, this side of the the battle mm-hmm. for Bella's affection, what does that say about me as as a reader, as a viewer? You know, what does it say about my identity? And haven't thought about this in years of what being so so strongly team jacob meant to me in my in my identity but i think that there's definitely something to be said for the positioning of edward as the quote-unquote right choice right it caused people to declare something at any time that you like declare something or decide that you are that you have to feel fervently about something in order to be participating, it actually causes you to feel more fervently. <laughs> so it's actually, yeah. it, it's it's not not to go too off the rails here, but it's actually a similar tactic to why proselytizing for your religion makes you a more hardcore believer, even though it's very unlikely to actually convert anyone outside of, like, like proselytizing doesn't work but it does cause believers who are very, very adamant in their belief. To me, I think choosing Jacob made me feel like I was sort of rebellious. Yeah. And I know this sounds ridiculous because we're talking about, like, fangirling over a book series. (laughs) But to me, it was like, I don't just choose the thing that's presented right in front of me. Okay, and I'm going to really go out on a limb here, but I think that Jacob is sort of the safety queer choice. Like if you're a little bit queer and you're a little bit like not quite jiving with the narrative, but you're not really ready as a young person to like own the fact that you might be queer, I think you were more likely to choose Jacob. Yeah. Say more about that. Okay. Well, so because the narrative is so strongly about Edward, (laughs) like he's so obviously like the right choice and, and, and heteronormativity is, like, all about sort of, like, the right thing. Like, the right thing is to get married and to only have one partner. The right thing is to have children with that partner. The right thing is, like, the socially acceptable thing is heteronormativity. And so there's a way in which anytime you are diverting from that, even though it's still hetero it feels a little bit rebellious in the same type of way that I think being queer is inherently rebellious. And so like another place where I think this kind of thing can crop up is just 
even the enjoyment of horror type or like genre type fiction that isn't like totally mainstream. And so even though Twilight was totally mainstream, I think Jacob felt like the less mainstream choice. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think I was like in my heyday of like being a hipster before that was a thing. And just, you know, yeah, <laughs> thinking, like, if something's popular, I can't, I'm not gonna like it, because... Miss, I am a Slytherin. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, miss, well, I wanna grow up and marry... Draco Malfoy. Draco and or <laughs> Snape. <laughs> Maybe both of them. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we'll do, we can do, like, a Harry Potter therapy session at some point to unpack all of our, um... <laughs> neuroses specifically (laughs) related to harry potter oh man i actually do i have harry potter neuroses can i think of any i think i've grown out of most of them (sighs) i would like to assume i have but (laughs) who knows you were always much more like i'm the biggest harry potter fan in the world i was always just kind of like that's cool i like that about you but i'm not (laughs) which is funny to say that now especially reflecting on our previous episode which started with me saying i hate jk rowling stand by it still (laughs) i know i think that that just really goes to show you that love and hate are kind of like they live closer together than any other emotions for sure (laughs) So, speaking of love and hate being bedfellows, we have to talk about Alina and the Darkling. Oh my god. I'm so excited to talk with them. I don't know if a single ship has ever given me as many feels as Alina and the Darkling. Okay, back to Twilight. There was something else that I wanted to say about the, the Jacob versus Edward choice. It was that even while reading Twilight and, like, absolutely loving it and, like, you can't really love Twilight unless you have already kind of accepted that Bella is going to be with Edward. There were problems with their relationship that many, many people have done autopsies on. But even while reading them, part of why I liked Jacob better is that I legitimately thought that he was a better choice for Bella in terms of, like, relationship yeah. health. Yeah, and, and that brings up a point that I, I want to make before we get too deep into talking about specific other specific love triangles is this... You kind of saw this in in the film, in the Twilight films, a little more, but also like in general, I think part of the malign that some people have for love triangles is that very often the way that the characters are positioned in love triangles is that there is one super obvious choice, you know? So like every romantic comedy mm-hmm. where like the female love interest is with some other dude because it's always a woman and two men. So it's like the heroine will be in a, a relationship with a guy who's like so clearly an asshole. He's not good for her. Mm-hmm. He like isn't taking their relationship seriously. There's a whole litany of reasons why this guy is obviously the wrong choice. And then the hero is positioned as a person who really gets to know the heroine and who really understands her in a way that her current love interest doesn't. And, And I think that that's the positioning that a lot of love triangles 
come out to be in a lot of media. And right. I think especially movies, because like a 90 minute movie, you don't really have that much time to like make that guy a well-rounded character that we care about, but we still see that like the hero is the obvious choice. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in Twilight, what is interesting is that even though you are set up to believe that Edward is obviously the right choice, I think that it is not as bad of a love triangle as you might think because Jacob does have so many qualities that made him a character that we cared about and that we wanted to see Bella in a relationship with. Yeah. And so I think there's more nuance to the Bella Edward Jacob love triangle than a lot of people give it credit for. Watch us come out of this podcast being like, we hate J.K. Rowling and we love Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> but I do think it's kind of a testament to her writing that she didn't just make Jacob this like fallback character. I think that there are some real moments in those books he is there for her and there's like a real genuine closeness between those two characters. Right. Even though, as you said, I don't think he is necessarily positioned as a legitimate love interest. I think that she does do right by him in that the relationship between Bella and Jacob is not like cheapened. Yeah, it's like a real relationship, which is why yeah. I don't even want to talk about the ending. <laughs> I just... Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think I can go there. No. New Moon is the end of uh, <laughs> the series. I actually, I had two thoughts while you were talking about the sort of 90s rom-com-esque love interest, mm -hmm. like the guy being kind of just like a jerkwad and then the hero being positioned as like the obviously better choice who's going to treat her right. There's two things that that, that that plays into to me, two other tropes, tropes that we don't like and which I don't think we will ever confess to liking. Yeah. And those are... One, the nice guy, Ew. which yeah. is maybe less of a trope on television and more of like a sociological phenomenon in which <laughs> men think that being nice means that they deserve sex. Which is reinforced by seeing that played out as a trope yes. in many, 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 many pieces of media. Of course. So in addition to the nice guy trope, this is less of a trope and more of just me noticing something. By refusing to give a female love interest legitimate choices, you reduce her narrative to basically accepting some heteronormative path and you never actually let her explore what could potentially be a fatal flaw. Basically, you rob her of the ability of actually growing as a person or even being a person. Isn't that just so interesting yes. that that's a thing that exists in our media? Interesting is certainly a word for it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Twilight. Uh, it happened. We bought into it. We were stands. I feel like I can say to people, like, yeah, I was a Twilight stand, but at least I was Team Jacob. That gives you a modicum of grace compared to some of, some of the other just outrageous behavior that grew out of this. And I do think that at some point I want to segue from the, the marketing conversation, this phenomenon that came, really came out of, especially the marketing for the films of Twilight, that mm -hmm. it has become a, a thing in oh, like yeah. every teen movie book. Did, did you mean the but Yes, games? so I, I don't want to like, like <laughs> jump to that right away if we still have Twilight things we want to talk about. 
No, all I want to say is that when I arrive at the pearly gates and they're listing my sins, they're going to be like, you liked Twilight, but you were Team Jago. <laughs> it's okay. No, I love that. I'm done. I'm done with Twilight. <laughs> okay. So I think actually this would be a great time to talk yeah. about the Hunger Games. We've talked about the Hunger Games a little bit before. And one, just very briefly, the Hunger Games are a somewhat apocalyptic, speculative, but not exactly sci-fi series. Dystopian, yeah. that's the word. They're a dystopian trilogy centered on the main character Katniss, who is attempting to overthrow the government that once was America, but is now, what are they called? I don't remember. Uh, Panem. Okay, they're trying to throw, overthrow the Panem government. Corrupt, horrible, evil, certainly nothing like what we have today. Uh, I'm not at all scared for the country we live in. Anyway, uh, so her her main journey as a character is that she, she's, she's resistant at first. She doesn't really want to be this person. She basically does it to protect her family. And so then for her to eventually accept the role of having to be this rebellion leader is like a big emotional journey for her. However, uh, the marketing around uh, the Hunger Games really tried to play into the same type of thing that got so much fervor around Twilight, which is that there are two potential love interests and one of them is like her hometown boy and one of them actually participates in the Hunger Games with her and they become allies sort of as a in-world marketing ploy to gain them sympathy And so then they end up becoming romantic in the public eye, even though that's not necessarily fully something they're committed to behind closed doors. And so there's this tension. The problem is, in my opinion, this isn't really the focus of Katniss's emotional journey. In fact, she's, if I recall correctly, she's pretty much annoyed that anyone is asking her to think romantically when she's like, excuse me, the government is horrible and corrupt and I'm trying to overthrow it. A very, very logical choice. Right. Within the narrative, she's not really that into the whole thing. And then in addition to that, the reason why this marketing felt just so overtly... uh, What is the word here? Manipulative? Yeah. The reason why this marketing felt so manipulative is because neither of these characters really represent, like, different choices that she's struggling with in the narrative. And so in a book like Twilight, where really, like, the romance is the point... Who to choose can really be, you know, a big deal. But in a book like The Hunger Games, where you have a serious plot going on that has nothing to do with the romantic interests, the two romantic leads really need to represent two different pathways along the, the plot in order for them to be interesting. And so, like, if I'm kind of a layperson and I'm not really, like, that invested in it, and you're like, oh, are you Team Peter or Team Gale? And I don't have a clear way to understand... Like, oh, maybe one of these represents, like, working with the government and making things better. And one of them represents overthrowing the government. Or, you know, I know that's not how the books are, but just if that were the case, it would be easier for me as a person to latch on to one. And that would say something about me and that would be interesting. But the Hunger Games don't really do that. I definitely think that you have a really good point there. And I have two diverging thoughts. As long as they're not divergent thoughts. They're, no, they're not divergent thoughts. Uh, <laughs> refer back to, what was it, our first episode? where Yeah, the special girl. You can hear how much Maggie hates divergent. Um, <laughs> anyway, basically, like, my, my two thoughts are these... So on the one hand, I think that using the Team Gale, Team PETA thing is 
firstly, a complete disservice to the story that Suzanne Collins is trying to tell. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that she ever crafted those two boys to be, like, the point of the story. It's far from, far, far from the point of the story. And I won't spoil how it ends, but the way that the series ends, she does end up with one of them, but in a way that felt a lot more real. It's like, based on these experiences we've had together, there's no one else who's gonna get Mm -hmm. it. So if Katniss was going to end up with anyone, I think it makes sense that she ends up with the character that she does. That being said, I understand that production company is wanting to get as many teenagers and young adults as possible to buy into this, so they will spin the marketing. This is certainly not, like, the first time that this was seen. But I think in a, in a lot of ways, this kind of codified in modern YA the, like, kind of milquetoast intellectual choice versus the brawny, kind of sexy, but not very smart choice. Oh, no. You know, where it's, like, you know, kind of, like, brains versus brawn. Yeah. In a way that, again, I think is a disservice to the characters, because I think that all of the characters in The Hunger Games are are fully realized in a way that you don't necessarily see it super often. All of the derivatives that came from that Hunger Games trope, Mm -hmm. The Hunger Games did it the best. I think that it's interesting to see where the marketing both worked and didn't work with The Hunger Games and the romantic love triangle angle that they tried mm-hmm. to push with The Hunger Games. Because, like, it was part of the story, kind of, but it was the least important part. And what I liked about Katniss was that she's like, bitch, I do not have time for this. I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to save the world, not die. So to my point about the different choices being able to represent different things, or at least that being a route that the author can take, I think a really great example of this is in The Ember Quartet, which we've already mentioned. An Ember in the Ashes is the debut novel by Saba Tahir. She has two additional books out, and the fourth one is out next year? Is it next year? It's November or December. Oh my gosh, I need it in my life so badly. This was one of my favorite book series in the last five years that I have found. It's very, very good. They're very good. They're very streamlined to the story that they're trying to tell. I sometimes wish that there was like a little bit more world building or a little bit more time to like explore things, but I understand that these characters are like trying to topple a very horrible regime and they don't have time for that shit. So, okay, I get it. But sometimes I'm like, damn, like, can we have a minute to breathe? Anyway. So these books are these books are centered on two characters. In the first book, they're centered on, on Laia and Elias. I'm gonna focus first on Elias's love triangle, which is between him and Laia, obviously, and him and Helene, who later becomes a point of view character. Now Helene is a soldier alongside Elias, and so they they work for the martial government. Laia is in a, from an oppressed group of people who her family is killed by this horrible government and she ends up becoming a spy trying to help a resistance movement. And in the process, she and Elias meet and end up working together. Elias's loyalty to the government is like on question from day one in the book. Yes, yeah, because his mask has not like fully fused to his face. Right. And this is probably more minutia than we need to explain about the series. But it's a good bit of world building. Yeah, so part of the military for the Empire is this group of soldiers called masks, and they all have these like silver masks 
that basically are fused to their face. And Elias, Elias's mask is like not fully fused to his face because he throughout his later years at the this military academy is like having doubts about his loyalty. Right. And Helene is his best friend and Helene in contrast is extremely loyal. And to be fair to Helene, she doesn't agree with everything that the government does. Like she doesn't necessarily think that all these evil things are actually good things, but she thinks the right way to address this is from the inside. Whereas Elias feels like he can no longer be part of it and he needs to leave. It's very clear that the choice between Helene and and Laya are deeply tied to Elias's difficult choice as a character for whether or not he's going to sort of go with Helene and try to change the Empire from the inside, which I low-key think would have been a better choice for him. Uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, oh my god. Okay, like, in the first book, I just had to be like, Elias, you're gonna have so much power if you go this route. You can make things better. You are just throwing this away. Why yeah. are you doing this? Well, there wouldn't be the rest of the series if he had done it that way, right? I mean, there would have. I know, but it's so frustrating. Okay, anyway, so not only is he romantically attracted to Helene, but he also is struggling with the choice of whether or not he should go alongside her and try to change his world and his government and his country from the inside. Whereas when he eventually chooses to go with Laia, which we've already kind of spoiled it because, you know, that there's multiple books and they end up going on adventures together. The choice to go with Laia really is symbolic as well of him deciding to go against the Empire. Yes. And so I think that that is just masterfully done. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I think that they do all have very diverse motivations of why they're doing what they're doing. And those cr- end up crossing and, right. and, you know, things get complicated. But I, I think that Sabatahir really did a, a masterful job of establishing the tension with each of them wrestling with their romantic choice. Because even later on, Helene is kind of the center of right. a love triangle as well. Okay, I haven't read book three, so okay. I don't know, but please, please talk about it if it's relevant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I won't spoil anything there, but so there is that that happens. And so, so I mean, Helene also has a lot of difficult choices to make, especially toward the end of book two, things have gotten really, really wild with her. And she's in a really difficult position. And I don't know what choice she's going to have to make in book three, but would I be correct in assuming that Saba Tahir correctly manages to place those two love interests on those two separate pathways in that way? Yes. Yeah. She's very good at that. She does the same thing with Laia. So Laia also kind of has two love interests. So there's there's Elias, as we've always, obviously already talked about. But there's this other character who is from the same group of oppressed people as she is. And so they are able to connect in ways that she and Elias are not. Laia's journey has less of this difficult choice problem that Elias is set up with, but she does have to decide basically if she's going to be able to trust people that are not from her own group. I I do think that there's tension there in that. Yeah, absolutely. She also has to grow as a person in terms of just like being brave enough to actually do the difficult things that she is doing. And Elias always encourages her to be brave and to like learn how to fight. And this other love interest is like kind of protective of her and is kind of sheltering of her and acts more familial in terms of like, I want to keep you safe. 
when she's with that character, she does have a tendency to sort of defer to him. Whereas when she's with Elias, she tends to make active choices and, and do things because she has to. And so I think that those two love interests are set up really well on that side of her her growth. So it's not so much about making a specific choice so much as growing as a person and how she wants to become. Yeah, I think that's a very good summation of each character's positioning and battle that they're dealing with internally and how it's that's mm-hmm. reflected really nicely in the love triangle. Yeah. Man, talking about this is just making me like realize how freaking good she is. Yes. Highly recommend. Yeah, we recommend read them because the fourth one's gonna be out and then you can just read all four of yes them. yeah you don't have to suffer like we're suffering <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh i i read the first two and i had to wait for the third one yeah and that was really rough because the first two i read really quickly and it was just like my brain is exploding it's so good yeah no i should i should definitely i should definitely finish reading the third one i just i had to return it to the library and then i didn't remember to request it again and yeah i'm bad that's it (laughs) oh it's okay i mean there's a lot of stuff out there to read so i understand there's a lot. So I would like to also talk about the Shadow and Bone series, the Grishaverse yes. books. Not so much the second duology of the Grishaverse, but the first trilogy, the original trilogy mm-hmm. about Alina Starkov. Alina Starkov is the main character of the first three books of this universe um, by Leigh Bardugo. We've already talked about Leigh Bardugo at some other times. We are huge fans. Our queen. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like a little bit obsessed with Leigh Bardugo. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I have I have been ever since I read Shadow and Bone the first time. Yeah. That was back when um, authors had tumblers and would like interact with you and we ex- we exchanged a couple DMs in 2012. Oh my god. <laughs> Another author that we have met together. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, so many greats. Yes. So, Alina Starkoff is a sort of special girl herself, kind of a chosen one. She is positioned right away to have a childhood love interest, so someone that she's known all along, who sort of, I think, is meant to highlight her, like, truest, deepest self, because he's really her only family. We are not such fans of him. We don't like him. His name is Maul, and this book is set in fantasy Russia, but Maul is the Spanish word for bad, so works out in my favor. <laughs> yeah, so he's bad. He's bad. But he's not he's not bad in like the evil boyfriend yeah. way. We just don't find him that yeah. interesting. So there is an evil boyfriend. His name is the Darkling. And I mean, come on. His name yeah. is the Darkling. <laughs> so the Darkling is this very powerful Grisha, which Grisha is that word that that universe's magic user. So when Alina is first like learning to use her magic, uh, she doesn't know how to control it, but the Darkling does know how to control her magic. And so there's, like, quite a bit of tension between them. He, at the time, is positioned not in an evil way, but simply as a powerful person in the fantasy Russia empire and military, which Alina is in. So she's, like, a soldier. He's this powerful guy. It comes to light that she has this power that he decides will be the thing that will end the war, or she ends up, like, working alongside of him to develop her power in the first book. He ends up not being, uh, well... He's the dark light. He's the bad guy. <laughs> he ends up he ends up not being the person that Alina wants to have control over her power. And so this is positioned as a very clear choice where he he extends to her the ability to work with him to be the evil rulers of fantasy Russia over and over again. 
I don't really think it's that much of a spoiler to say that she doesn't end up with him, much to our chagrin. Oh, it's so sad. He's such a good character. He's just like so evil and so sexy. Yeah, and I and I think that this is why you know at some point we will do an episode about evil boyfriends. We're like saving up for it yeah. in a way. Um, we will we will talk about it at some point, and at that point, I think we will just have to dive deep into the Darkling and the Grishaverse and give all respect to our Queen Lee Bardugo because she is really the master. You know he's bad, but. He's really sexy, and he also, I think she does a really good job of kind of crafting his motivation. Like, it's not just that he wants world domination. It's also that he's kind of the only person that can accomplish certain things, and those things do need to happen. Yeah, this is one of my personal favorite love triangles, just because the the relationship between Alina and the Darkling is really is really fascinating. She could not get to the position of power that she's in and being able to hone and master her own abilities without him. Mm-hmm. Basically, once she is fully realized in her abilities, they are the two most powerful Grisha. So they could be this insane power couple. I feel a little bit cheated that I never got to see the the version where <laughs> Alina goes bad. Yeah. And she and the Darkling just become become like the powerful overlord Grisha. Here's the thing is they could have saved Fantasy Russia from Fantasy Russia's enemies and then she could have stabbed him in the back later. Right. <laughs> uh, yes. No, there's there's actually a third love interest that we like better. Yeah. Nikolai, uh, this doesn't get into love dodecahedron territory, but it is like a love parallelogram, a love rectangle, if you will. Nikolai is the prince of this kingdom. And basically he has a secret identity and then his true identity is the prince. In the second book of the trilogy, he is introduced kind of like a strategic political partner for Alina, which is how the idea of them being in a romantic relationship is introduced. It would be very advantageous to both of us politically if we were married, right? essentially. And I still feel cheated by this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do too. Because... Again, Nikolai is really, like, witty and just, like, such a fun, interesting character. Yeah. What starts out as this political partnership really blossoms into a genuine friendship and then romantic feelings. I think that that could have been a really wonderful end to the series as, you know, like she gets to be the princess of Ravka and also be this badass, powerful Grisha. Thank you for reminding me what the name of Fantasy Russia is. I could Um. not remember. (laughs) (laughs) What choice do Nikolai versus Mal represent? Because I think by the time Nikolai enters the equation, even though there is still sexual tension between Alina and the Darkling, I think it's pretty clear that they're not going to be a thing. So at that point, the choice really does boil down to Mal versus Nikolai. Yeah. I guess in thinking about it, the choice to go with Nikolai is really one in which she chooses to lead a life that is going to be political in nature. And where she eventually chooses Mal, she completely gets out of the spotlight. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to go live on an estate in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to start an orphanage. Which, you know what? I think that's actually part of why I find the choice so devastating. Really? That's 
the thing you want? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like she's had this really hard life dealing with like this newfound power, saving her country, all of this stuff. Also, she was an orphan. She had a really hard adolescence. There is some poetry to bookending the series. It starts when she is an orphaned child and Maul is the only person there with her. And then it ends with them starting their own orphanage that would be a more loving place than the place where they grew up. I guess I feel like it's almost too on the nose. Like it's, yeah. it almost reaches the level of being twee to me. I, I don't disagree with you. She shows an amount of cunning, grows into that and like into this more political exacting figure she could have had a role so i think i think we've done a pretty good job of exploring like some love triangles that we think are actually really effective and that we really enjoy and even if the choice between nikolai and mao is not like as tightly woven to the narrative choice i still think that because they're very different characters and they're both very fleshed out that choice is still really interesting as a reader and that's why it's still effective yeah there is one other thing about love triangles that i really want to dig into that is often not explored in the canon of a text until pretty recently, but which I think is done quite a bit in fan culture, and that is if you draw the third line of the triangle, things get queer. Yes. I'm gonna roll us back real quick to Legally Blonde. I know. I think it holds up. Well, so in this case, the protagonist is not being faced with a choice of two people, but is in fact one leg of a triangle in which she and another person are both in love with the same man, which causes her to go on this adventure of self-discovery where she goes to law school. She realizes that she's actually kind of smart. She eventually realizes that she doesn't want the guy and he ends up with neither of them at the very end and the two women become friends. Yeah. But what if they were gay? <laughs> Gal pals, as we like to call it in the industry. <laughs> right, right. What if they were not just friends, but gal pals? Yeah, what, if, what if they were gal pals? So I know that we've touched on some fan fiction topics before, but I just want to reinstate something that I may or may not have stated explicitly before, which is that I am not myself a person who reads or writes very much fan fiction. Like it's never really been my outlet, but as a concept, I am here for it because I think that it gives us the queer voices and the queer narratives that we so desperately need. Sometimes just knowing that other people have paired those people up together and have seen them in a queer light is enough for me. (laughs) It just brings me a lot of joy. Absolutely. With Legally Blonde and particular, you know, you have the two female love interests of milk toast lawyer dude. I don't remember any of their names. Warner Huntington the third. No way. There's no way that guy isn't a dick. He's a dick, but he's also not very smart and not very good at law school. Right. Both Elle and Vivian, who is Selma Blair's character, are the opposites in terms of their looks and their personalities and everything. But but I think there's almost like a sexual tension between them. I kind of think there is too. <laughs> what is that thing that I reblogged at some point? It was like, everything has queer subtext if you're willing to try hard enough or something. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, my queer tag on Tumblr is that gay shit. You can go look at it if you like. That's like the best, the best tag too. That gay shit. Yes. Through most of the legend of Korra, there's like kind of a love triangle between Korra, Mako, and Asami. Well, and I guess all of the sides of that love triangle technically are completed by the end because Korra dates Mako 
and then he then Mako dates Asami. And then at the end, Korra and Asami get together. So that is really, you know, the per- perfect triangle because they, they do all end, <laughs> end up together at some point. Yes. And we do ship it. We, yeah. we ship it. Um, you know what else is, like, pretty queer? I mean, like, this is, like, explicitly queer, but in st- I mean, Steven Universe is full of explicitly queer things. I think sometimes about the Pearl-Rose relationship, and I'm not, like, a huge Steven Universe person, but, like, I do think about that a lot and how Pearl is so devoted to Rose and then she chooses a guy, which we obviously can't fault her for because... That's how Steven got here. And also, Steven's dad is a really, really wonderful character. That love triangle is explicitly queer. And later on in the series, Pearl and Greg have a relationship, not a romantic relationship, but they have a relationship because they're co-raising this child. The tension between them is just really, really excellent. Obviously, I mean, you know, it's Rebecca Sugar, of course. It's going to be great. And speaking of cartoons and Rebecca Sugar, Marceline and Princess Princess Bubblegum, not really a love triangle, just, just gay. And I'm here for it. I don't really have anything else to say about that. Maggie, have you watched any of Adventure Time? I've watched a little bit of Adventure Time. I've never watched Steven Universe. Okay. Well, I'm here. I'm here for that gay shit. Yeah. (laughs) I think, so there's, I guess this isn't like a love triangle. That was like, there wasn't a love triangle in text, in show, but a relationship that I always like felt like there was queer subtext to and I really wish that it would have been explored was the relationship between Rory and Paris on Gilmore Girls. Okay. Which I know I you have have not watched Gilmore Girls, but so that's a show that I think is ruled by love triangles. So, you know, for Rory, there's her first boyfriend is Dean. He's the nice boy from the small town. And in the second season, there's like a bad boy from New York who comes to the small town and that's the first love triangle and then there's the rich boy from Yale that gets involved but it's like at each point in time there's like Rory, Jess, and Dean and then there's Rory, Dean, and Logan and then there's Rory, Jess, and Logan. Various points in the show each of those are kind of distinct love triangles. Mm throughout the series Rory has this frenemy turned actual friend Paris who she meets when she starts going to the fancy prep school Paris is a character who I always felt like male romantic interests like don't necessarily make sense but it Mm -hmm. would make a lot of sense if she were as a teenage girl struggling with her own queerness and like part of the reason that she has this tension with Rory is that she sees like Rory successful in the way that she is also successful but there's like a tension there because she's like do I want to be you do I want to beat you do I want to be your friend and that's a relationship that I think that there is certainly an abundance of fan fiction that has explored that ship no doubt (laughs) yeah they never shared Rory and Paris never share a romantic interest but if they had that would have been a really interesting exploration of their relationship but I feel like now we're just getting into like who do we ship (laughs) let's yeah who do we ship let's make it clear Okay, but I I just thought of one. I actually just thought of one, which is in Mean Girls. Oh, yeah. Why didn't Katie and Regina George get together? That would make a lot of sense. You talking about the whole frenemies thing? Like, so much, like, frenemy dynamic between teen girls in movies feels gay to me. Yeah, it's 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 like sexual tension. Yeah, right. Which, you know, some people hate it, but I think I love sexual tension in, I, in yes. stories. Yeah, 
Okay, so we've talked about some love triangles that work really well and that we are really compelled by, and we've also talked about love triangles that we maybe felt like were distracting from the plot, like especially the hubbub around the Hunger Games. What do you think makes a love triangle successful, and what do you think makes a love triangle fall flat? Or maybe a better question is, when does a love triangle feel like it's forced by the fandom or by the people advertising? And when doesn't a love triangle feel really fundamental and authentic to the story? Those are great questions. You know, as we wrap up the conversation, Mm -hmm. I think at least for for me as as a reader and a consumer of media, when a love triangle works for me is when all of the participants in the relationship are fully realized, you Mm -hmm. know, like all three of the characters are characters that I've gotten deep into their psyche. I understand who they are. Um, So the choice has to be a legitimate choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think, I think you touched on this quite a bit is like what is the substantive difference that it's going to make if they choose one or the other, you know? Is there going to be a major difference in their life or what are the two diverging paths that this character is going to go down Mm -hmm. depending on the choice that they do make? Right, right. And that ties into my big thing, which I've basically already stated, but I think to me, at least when the love triangle centers on a point of view character, that choice needs to be embedded in their journey as a character emotionally and be reflective in some way on how they're going to change throughout the novel or the story. When it's not the point of view character, like there are times when the point of view character is one leg of a love triangle. In that case, the choice to even pursue that person who's also interested in someone else needs to be a fleshed out choice. In that case, I do think it ultimately comes down to whether the characters are all fully realized, like you were saying. Love triangles. We love them. We do. <laughs> we love them a lot. Steve Jacob for life. Uh, so what are you reading right now? So I just finished The Singer of All Songs at your request. I have thoughts about it, but I'll just list the other books I'm also in the midst of. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm finishing... The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemisin, because I I never actually finished it. It's another one of those books I had to return to the library, and I was, like, halfway through it. And now I'm, like, low-key embarrassed about it, because I recommended this book series to someone, and now she's almost done with it, and I'm like, oh my god, I have to finish it so we can talk about it. (laughs) Oh, is that the last book in the fifth season series? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's the third book in the fifth season. We own the fifth season and The City We Become, um, but I haven't read either of them yet. Oh, I have to order her new book, yeah. I'm also reading The Night Circus at a different friend's request. She uses it as a comp title for her book. And so I wanted to read it in order to like better understand why she's comping that title. I really like it so far, but I'm only a little ways in. I've heard great things about it, but I haven't actually read it. Well, I'll let you know. The Singer of All Songs, it left me a little bit lukewarm, which I'm a little bit sad about because I like kind of hyped it on our last episode. I was like, this is so nice to read. Yeah. And I think the beginning <laughs> is stronger than the end. I think it like a little bit loses its way. I don't know. I guess I just felt like it really wasn't her adventure. It was really Darrow's adventure and she was just along for the ride. And I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like I just didn't understand her motivation. Yeah. And it's I'll, admittedly, it's been a really long time since I read it. So I did recommend this book to Aya. I basically one day was reminded of the image of this book 
and just thinking about like the magic of it and just remembering it being like, wow, that was just like a really idyllic, like beautiful world that that book took place in, even though I was like, I don't remember a ton of what happens, but I just remember really enjoying it. I did read, I read the second one. Oh, you did? But I don't remember, yeah, I don't remember if I read the third one because it is a trilogy. I do remember the ending did kind of lose a little bit for me, but the lyrical quality of the magic system in the world and just the the world building was in my memory is really very beautiful. No, I will agree with that. I think the the magic is really cool. The the magic in this book is all done by singing and so various spells are called chantments because you have to chant. <laughs> anyway, and so like I think the, I think the whole chantment concept is really neat, but I just felt like her decision to leave, I just did not understand. And it like hints at her like wanting to figure out who her father is, but like she never like works toward that. She just like goes along with Darrow's quest. Yeah. It did kind of remind me of in ways, at least in the setup of Lyriel, which is the second book in the Aberson series by Garth Nix, which I highly recommend. Okay. Uh, Lyriel also is like living in sort of an enclave and she doesn't know who her father is. And she's kind of different from all the other people there who are like kind of priestesses of a religion. And she does go on a quest to figure out who her father is and learning this is devastating to her. I was expecting that kind of thing and it just, there's just like never that high of stakes. It kind of was lost on me. Yeah. Anyway, that was a lot. Oh, it's all good. (laughs) All right, so what are you reading? Well, so I think the last time we talked about this, I was just about to start reading There There by Tommy Orange, um, which I have since finished. Highly recommend that. I have some some critiques of it but overall i would say it's beautifully written and pretty short um it's about the urban native american experience Mm -hmm. so the author himself grew up in oakland and he is half native and half white and he drew a lot on some of his own experiences and people he interacted with there's 12 different point of view characters so that's what yeah could he could have not included some of the, those point of view characters and really strengthened the the story and the ties among the other characters. But I still thought it was, it was really, it was very good. I definitely recommend that. I also, I was camping all this past week and mm. while I was camping, I read Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which is his memoir of his childhood growing up in South Africa. That was really, really excellent as well. Oh, wow. If you're a fan of Trevor Noah at all, I definitely recommend it. it it was a super quick read. I finished it in like a day and a half, probably, in the woods. So I needed another book to read while we were on our trip. So I ended up going to a bookstore in Durango, and I, <laughs> I got this book that I think is going to go on my, my Goodreads shelf that is called Not Good But Still Fun. <laughs> It's called American Royals by Catherine McGee. And it's basically this kind of alternate universe. Uh, what if America had a royal family oh instead of uh, democracy? It's like uh, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief. But at the same time, there's also part of me that's like, oh, this feels really tone deaf to the United States in the last five years, really. Okay. Um, and, this, and it came out like a year ago. So it's not as though it can be excused. <laughs> no. Yeah. Not good, but still fun. That sounds... Yes, yeah. So it's basically like, I mean, I think I'm going to have fun reading it. I think it's also going to be kind of bad. (laughs) 
So there are, like, certain pieces of American history that the author has maintained. Like, so far she's made reference to, like, the War of 1812. So I'm like, okay, so that still happened. And so I'll, I'll be interested to see what things she keeps from U.S. history and, like, how she handles the realities of life in America in real in the real world versus like in this fictional monarchy she's created. I'm not sure that this author is going to be interested in issues of, you know, like social justice. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll but see. Well, yes. cool. I'm interested to know how you like it once you've read more of it. I think it'll be a really fast read so hopefully i will have a definitive judgment by the next time we podcast okay cool yeah. uh where can you find us uh so you can find us on uh all of the socials so on instagram we're at trope confessions um and on twitter where you can find us at TropeCon pod if you want to give us feedback about the show, send us an email, suggest a topic, you can email us at tropeconfessions at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to see what Aya and I are up to just uh, on our own, you can follow me at the Magpie Reads. That's R-E-A-D-S. I am on Instagram and on Twitter. And I am Aya McGuire everywhere. A-Y-A-M-A-G-U-I-R-E. Twitter. Instagram. Tumblr. Tumblr. Yeah. Oh, my, I'm the magpie reads on Tumblr, too. I really wish that Twitter would let us be trope confessions. I'm upset that that won't fit. It, like, ruins our whole thing. Anyway, it's I fine. know. Yeah, me too. Signing off, this is your OTP. Maggie and Aya. Bye. Trope Confessions is made by me, Aya McGuire, and my co-host, Maggie Reed. Our music was written and performed by Matt Lindauer. You can find his music linked in our Instagram profile and on Bandcamp. Our producer is Sam Shar. I always knew we could be friends because... You liked Twilight, but you were Team Jacob. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>